Chapter Twelve of The Hall in the Grove by Pansy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Enlarging the Circle. Good land! This was the strongest form of emphasis of which the widow Adams was known to be guilty. Even this she used only on extreme occasions. That the present was a very extreme occasion, and that the exclamation was intended to show her dismay, not to say disgust, was apparent from her face. The occasion was when she first looked into Nancy's kitchen. It really was a sight to drive a neat housekeeper wild. Greasy floor, greasy tables, sooty walls, gray ash-bestrewn, grease-streaked stove, greasy tins and sticky tins, and dishes roughened by long months of mussy washing setting in a sort of dreary confusion on sticky shelves, plates of mouldy bread and a jar of fat, mouldy cucumber pickles, a plate of wilted baked potatoes, another of ends of meat, a bowl of very sour milk, another of mouldy gravy. This was the furniture of the pantry." No wonder that Mrs. Adams, as she surveyed the scene with neat skirts gathered in a gingerly way about her spare form, an intense disgust on her face, said again, "'Good land! How anybody can be so nasty beats me!' Mrs. Adams was not a member of any literary society, had never been, and she did not know that the adjective that she used was an inelegant word." As for the dishcloth, which she found lying in an ill-smelling little heap, where the dismal Nancy had left it when the mumps got possession of her, with the aid of the tongs she unceremoniously landed it in the stove. Then she tucked up her skirts, put on a large apron that covered her clean dress, pushed her sleeves above her elbows, and went to work. The hard-working little woman had spent many busy days, but perhaps none were ever busier than that in which she reorganized the ward homestead. She felt herself in honor bound to begin in the parlor, because of the mysterious performances, which she did not yet understand, that were to take place there in the evening. She still believed that the doings were to be more or less disreputable, but even in that case there was no reason why they should be carried on in such a musty, dusty, ill-conditioned room as she found that parlour to be. So, though she sighed, she worked vigorously. The first move was to carry every article of movable furniture into the hall, then the systematic worker, with damp cloth and dustpan, carefully removed the dust that had accumulated on mantel and window seats, then spread the floor half an inch thick with cornmeal, and used her broom vigorously. Even the carpet must have been astonished over the treatment it received. When every washable article in that room had been washed and polished, and arranged with a careful eye towards hiding faded spots and soiled spots and defects generally, even the widow Adams herself was astonished at the result of her handiwork. "'I'll be bound if it isn't a nice pleasant room as ever was,' she said admiringly. "'When the fire gets made and the shades drawn, and them lamps get lighted, it will look as cheery as need be. I'm free to confess that my heart felt as heavy as lead at the idea of making it fit to sit down in. That Nancy must have been a lazy creature before she took the mumps. But then maybe the poor thing didn't know how to do.' with which charitable conclusion of her soliloquy she closed the renovated room and trotted back to the kitchen, for it was time to vary her duties now and get the wards some dinner. 
Rapidly as she had worked, the short winter morning was going fast. "'Get us a bit of something,' the head of the house had said to her. "'Joe will bring up a piece of steak, but I don't suppose you will have time to cook it, and it doesn't matter much.' All this he had said with a sigh and a dreary face, as though life were in every sense a burden, and the widow Adams, without doing much logical reasoning over causes and effects, still told herself that Mr. Ward was growing grey most dreadfully fast for a man of his age, and she would cook the nicest bit of steak for his dinner that he had had in many a day, poor man. Had she known Nancy better, she would have been even more sure of that. There was very little time for the dining-room. Mrs. Adams sighed over it, and shook her head at it, and assured it that it should have the hardest scrubbing that was ever heard of that afternoon, if she could but get around to it. Then she swept and dusted, and foraged for a clean tablecloth, and took brisk little runs from the pantry to the kitchen, and from the kitchen to the dining-room, and accomplished wonders in a short space, considering the fact that she stopped to wash every dish she touched. It was just a small, common table, with a coarse clean tablecloth put on very evenly, and with dishes set squarely, every one of them shining with cleanliness. It was just the simplest of dinners, a dish of baked potatoes, a platter of beefsteak, a plate of butter, a plate of steaming johnny-cake, and a pot of tea. No pickles or fruits or relishes of any sort. Very little attention had Nancy paid to these unnecessary additions but I find myself pausing in doubt over my ability to give you even a hint of the effect that it, the sum total, had on the wards. They did not take in a single detail. They only knew that the whole was something that they seemed to have lost way back in the past, and found again that day. It was just a little bit of home. The potatoes came out of the oven at just the right moment, and their clean shining coats had been scientifically cracked, although Mrs. Adams had never even dreamed that any science was connected with the act, and the steak was broiled briskly over a bed of coals, turned and returned, and slashed, and patted with skilful hand, seasoned just right, and came to the table smoking hot. The johnny-cake had been dashed together in almost breathless haste, Mrs. Adams having put her skilled nose to the sole remaining loaf of bread, and uttered an emphatic, Bah! She regarded her effort with sour milk and egg and meal a little doubtfully. "'It was done in such an awful hurry,' she said excusingly. "'I couldn't blame it for not being good.' But no one in his senses could have blamed the brown, flaky, dainty-looking loaf which sent out such a delicate aroma. Certainly the wards did not. Mr. Ward Sr. took his second potato and his second bit of steak and his third bit of cornbread, and finally remarked, in a grave way, that for some reason he was uncommon hungry. He guessed he ate less breakfast than usual. Well, the widow Adams certainly performed wonders in that house that day. Hall and stairs testified to it, as well as parlor and dining-room. These all in fine order, she had intended giving the whole force of her being to that dreadful kitchen pantry but it chanced that in her search for something needed she penetrated to the boy's own room. Mr. Ward's she had seen before, and made up the bed, not without sighs and regrets that she must not take the time to sweep and dust and otherwise purify, 
but the dismal Nancy had done better for that room than anywhere else, and although her best was far below Mrs. Adams's worst, still, after all, there was a decided difference between this and the boy's room. This Mrs. Adams instantly recognized. She stood still in the middle of the floor, and placed both hands on her hips, said, "'Good land!' in her most expressive tone, turned her eyes in each dreary direction for a relieving glimpse, and finally, her dismay having reached its climax, she said, "'Why, dear me, good land!' Then she set to work. Broom, dustpan, duster, hot soapsuds, clean bed linen, clean spread. There were clean things enough piled away on the closet shelves, but more than anything else did Nancy hate to make use of them, because then the soiled ones had to be washed. But, oh, the transformation in that room! What wonders a little sweeping and dusting and putting away can accomplish! Add to this a carefully kept bed, with every sheet and cover straight and smooth, the whole tucked scientifically in at the sides after being scientifically rolled down at the top, and you have changed a dreary waste into a home room. It would be a curious study to trace the laws of influence, and see in what remote quarters they touch, and how strangely unlike the starting point is the message which it brings to some. Here were certain people apparently as far removed from the Chautauqua literary and scientific circle as though they lived in a world where it had not reached, and yet its influence was reaching out and touching them through unexpected and unintended processes. The small round table set carefully for supper, with its small white puffs of cream biscuit, its hard shining pat of butter, its hot apple sauce, its plate of soft ginger cake and its fragrant tea, each one of them so simple in itself, having apparently nothing whatever to do with science or literature. And yet it spoke to that weary father and those motherless sons of the literature of home as nothing for years had spoken. Mr. Ward went swiftly through the cheery room to his own private bedroom to hide tears that started in his fading eyes. He did not know why they started. It was all such a surprise to him. He had not known before that he had no home. As for Joe, when he first entered his own room that evening to make ready for the unwanted scenes below, he stopped midway in the room, even as Mrs. Adams had done, and, surveying the transformation with an air of utter astonishment for a moment, suddenly made known his opinion. "'Upon my word, if the CLPXYZ is to be thanked for this whole performance, from the johnny-cake and biscuit and gingerbread up to this sort of looking bed, why, I bow down to it, and from this time am its most devoted admirer. I say, Jim, Paul's mother is an institution, isn't she?' So the four new lamps were lighted, and the shining stove glowed, and the fire snapped and sparkled, and the long unused doorbell rang, and Mrs. Adams, her big apron laid aside, her dress unpinned and smoothed down, her face red and her manner a trifle flurried, received the guests. Mr. and Mrs. Fenton, the latter shaking hands with her cordially. The butlers, even Jack, who had condescended to come as the guest of young Bennet. Professor Monteith, whom she knew by sight, and who astonished her so by his appearance there that she had nearly dropped the lamp. What strange hallucination was this, that her boy Paul actually supposed himself to belong to this gathering? 
Her heart began to tremble over him. What a dreadful mistake he must have made! And he actually intended to come here this evening. Could she prevail upon him to stay in the kitchen with her? It was all some mean trick of those dreadful boys, and there she had made cream biscuit for their supper. For about one minute she regretted this act of motherliness. The next came Paul himself, came while she was putting a shade on the lamp, and Joe had opened the door to him, and behold, he walked into that parlour, his clean shirt in perfect order, his clothes brushed neatly, his hair carefully combed, and behold, Professor Monteith said, "'Ah, Adams, good evening!' And then, could the widow Adams believe her eyes, she shaded them with her hand, and reached for her apron to rub away the mist, before she remembered that on this strange evening she wore no apron. Professor Monteith deliberately arose and gave his hand to her Paul, and shook it cordially. And Paul, in no wise discomposed thereby, bowed right and left, and said, "'Good evening, Mr. Bennet. How are you, Ward?' and dropped into his seat as one who was at home and at ease. The porcelain shade slipped from the poor widow Adams's trembling hand, and it was only her own Paul's quick spring and deft-handedness that saved it from crashing on the floor. Then she made a hasty retreat, and perhaps could that CLSC have peeped through the keyhole at her, and have seen the way in which she dropped on her knees, and have heard the tearful outpouring of thanksgiving that her Paul, her darling, her one treasure, was actually sitting in that parlour which her own hands had made neat, joining in conversation with those whom she had not hoped he would ever know, they would surely have discovered that they were building better than they had known, that the circle of science was reaching farther than their most daring ambitions had dared to think, actually reaching to widow Adams herself, and warming her heart as it had not warmed in all the seventeen years of her widowhood. Speaking of keyholes, I shall have to admit that Widow Adams spent a good deal of her evening that she had meant to be a busy one, peeping through one. She could not hear a word that was said in the parlour, indeed she had no desire to. It was enough for her to see. It was such a sight as she had not expected to see in this world her boy Paul sitting among the aristocracy of Centerville, with Dr. Monteith's arm actually resting familiarly on his shoulder, actually bending over him to point out a certain something in a book. She knew not what the something was, she cared not. She would never wade through Merivale, she might never hear his name, but such joy as he had given her mother heart he might well rejoice over in heaven. End of chapter 12